Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. Good morning, church. How are you this Lord's Day? Blessed, thankful, better than we deserve, right? Amen. As is our custom, I want to invite you to open your Bibles for the reading of Scripture. Our reading this morning, like two weeks ago, will be from Psalm chapter 51. So please open your Bibles and read along with me. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. As we rehearsed two weekends ago, David authored this psalm after the prophet Nathan rebuked him for his sin with Bathsheba. And as we dove into this psalm, I pointed out that as David cries out to God from a place of repentance, he doesn't begin this psalm with rehearsing his sin, with confession. On his part, he begins this psalm by appealing to God's unchanging and unfailing character, to God's mercy, to God's steadfast love, to God's abundant mercy, his deep compassion. And as we walk through verses 1 through 6, we saw David's plea. It was a plea for pardon, a plea for washing, a plea for cleansing. We saw his expression of penitence, of brokenness as he cried up to God, aware of his sin and burdened 
in his conscience, even more aware of his sinful condition, confessing to God that it wasn't his sin that made him sinful, it was his sinful heart that made him sin, that he was born a sinner. And he confessed to God that God desires truth in him. And he also demonstrated uh, the markers of genuine repentance as he expressed all these things. So this week, as we continue to work through this psalm, we're going to see David continue to demonstrate what true repentance looks like, and we're going to see how repentance is the pathway to restoration. Now, for those of you who weren't here two weeks ago, um, and for those of you who were, I think that it's helpful for us to briefly rehearse just once more briefly the narrative of David's downfall recorded in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12. Recall how subtly sin appeared in David's life. The setting is this. It's the spring of the year when it's customary for kings in the ancient Near East to go out to battle. And when, it's, when all those kings are doing that, David delegates his own responsibility of conquering his enemies to his general Joab and to all the other men of Israel. He sends them to do his work. And foreshadowing something very, very bad, the text simply says, but David remained at Jerusalem. And while all of his men are away fighting his wars, David gets up from a late afternoon rest and he takes a walk on the rooftop of his royal palace. And it happened that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. We know what happens. David inquires about the woman. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and the news that she's married does not deter him. And the king whose mind should be focused on his military conquests has his heart now set instead on a sinful sexual conquest. David's sin escalates suddenly and decisively. We read that David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Premeditated adultery. And in this narrative, we can see that sin is so seductive. Its pull is so powerful. Its draw is so deadly. And its effects are so elusive. We can never clearly forecast the consequences of our sin. Bathsheba conceives. She sends word to David of her pregnancy. He's confronted with immediate evidence of his sin. And immediately, what does he do? He moves to manipulate the situation, to control his circumstances, to, to shroud his sin. So he calls for Uriah, Bathsheba's loyal and innocent husband, calls him back to Jerusalem from the theater of war, and David pretends to be his friend. He tries to trick Uriah into sleeping with his wife. If only David can obfuscate the truth, he might be free and clear. But David doesn't account for the fact that Uriah is just too honorable. He won't enjoy the pleasures of life at home while all the other men of Israel are sacrificing for king and country. And since David can't manipulate Uriah, he chooses to eliminate Uriah. And we remember what happens. He drafts a letter to Joab ordering him to position Uriah in the front lines of military conflict and then to call all the other men to draw back so that Uriah is killed. And if we consider David's plan, we realize that it is so poorly thought out because he's so deceived by his sin and so wrapped up in himself. It's so obvious 
that Joab is forced to improvise on the battlefield so that Uriah's death is believable. And as a result of that improvisation, many, many, many more men die. So the collateral damage that follows from David's sin just continues to cascade outward. And then in one of the most nauseating moments of the narrative, David orders Uriah to carry his own sealed execution order back to the general Joab, who would carry out those orders. And the whole picture is just dirty. It's, it's filthy, premeditated adultery, giving birth to premeditated murder, fallout everywhere. And we're told, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David's so invested in his sin, he's so self-deceived by it. His head and his heart are so distorted that the only remedy for his condition is the surgical precision of the Word of God. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to rebuke David, and God's truth cuts through every layer of, of deception, and it strikes David in the deepest recesses of his heart. And when that happens, when God's word is brought to bear on David's heart and on his conscience, he is undone. He is broken. And convicted to his core, David humbles himself and he cries out these simple words of penitence, I have sinned before the Lord. And just when it seems as though David should and could be doomed under God's justice, he receives a glimmer of hope. Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. So what we see is that David deserves execution because under the, the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, he's guilty on two capital counts, premeditated adultery, premeditated murder. And yet what David deserves is contrasted with, with what David receives because he receives mercy. God demonstrates forbearance. He suspends ultimate judgment. He puts away David's sin, and he withholds his divine justice. So I want to begin in this psalm this week by looking at David's continued petition to God from a place of repentance, beginning in verse 7. David continues by offering requests to God, um, unfolding over a series of six verses, and I think there's a sense in which these verses, these requests that we're going to look at now represent an escalation, an, an intensification of David's opening pleas that we looked at two weeks ago. The first, David is going to petition the Lord to remove his sin. Uh, David desperately needs the Lord to remove the stain of his sin. It, it is uh, in his consciousness, his conscience is is burden. He's aware of his guilt. He's plagued by it. He is wearing his scarlet letter. So he says in verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. David's first request is perhaps the most important request in the entire psalm. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And the intensity of David's plea 
the, the, the emotion of his request is conveyed through the parallel arrangement of his request. Purge me, wash me, he says. This is the second time in the psalm that David has used that word, wash, wash me. Two weeks ago, he paired wash me with cleanse me. But this time he pairs wash me with purge me. Purge me, O God, he cries. Purge is a very powerful word. Some of your translations might say purify me, but I don't think purify does justice to the force of the verb. The Hebrew literally says, unsin me, O God. Desin me. Desin me with hyssop. These four words have been referred to by some commentators as the four most important but least understood words in the entire psalm. Why is that? Let's think about hyssop for just a second. Consider some background. Uh, Hyssop is a plant uh, whose physical properties and structure just make it useful as a kind of brush or applicator uh, of various liquids. We see hyssop used instrumentally in, in three consecutive books of the Old Testament. We see it used in Exodus and Leviticus and also in Numbers. And the first and most noteworthy use of hyssop occurs in Exodus chapter 12. In light of God's impending final curse on the Egyptians, um, what would be the Passover, uh, God instructs Moses to command the people this way. Look at Exodus chapter 12. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb and take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So bunches of hyssop were used to apply the blood of the sacrificial Passover lamb, the blood that covered and protected the Israelite households from imminent fatal judgment. Can you begin to see what's going on here? It's very likely that David's mention of hyssop also alludes to two other Old Testament rituals for cleansing, both of which required sacrifice. God prescribed the first ritual in Leviticus chapter 14 for the cleansing of a leper and of a leper's household. The second ritual God prescribed in Numbers chapter 19 uh, to purify a person who had come in contact with or been exposed to uh, a dead body, a corpse. And in the cleansing of a leper, in the first instance, sacrificial blood is sprinkled with hyssop on the leprous person and his house seven different times. And by that sprinkling with blood, he is washed with the blood. The case of a person who's been in contact with and defiled by a corpse is even more vivid. When the priest would prepare the sin offering for the people of Israel, he would find, he would locate uh, a red heifer, uh, a red heifer without any blemish, without any defect, 
and he would slaughter it, and he would sprinkle the blood of that red heifer in front of the tent of meeting on behalf of the people. Uh, And the remainder of that heifer would then be burned. And in the case of a person who had come in contact with a corpse, the, the ashes of that burned red heifer would be mixed with water, And then the the priest would dip a bundle of hyssop in that ash and water, sprinkle it over the defiled person and throughout their house, and and thereby uh, consider them ceremonially washed of defilement. And in each of these instances, uh, the context for those ceremonies invokes the same word for purge, to de-sin. And in each instance, those rituals ended with the, with the priest pr- pr- pronouncing, and he shall be clean. And what does David say in verse 7? Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. You see, it's as if David is saying, sprinkle on me as the priest who sprinkles with hyssop the blood of the sacrifice on the leper or the water of the ashes of the red heifer on the person defiled. Purge me with the blood. Cover me, O Lord. Wash me with the water. Cleanse me. Here is the bottom line. In each of those three examples, atonement by death must be made to remove the guilt. David's saying, oh Lord, I need you to de-sin me through an atoning sacrifice. That is my only hope, to be clean before you. What do each of these rituals foreshadow? What do they prefigure? What do they point forward to, church? Jesus. They point forward to the work of Jesus. Now, verse 7 is also incredibly optimistic because it represents David's expression of confidence in God, of faith in God, of belief in God, of reliance upon God. Look what he says. It's emphasized by another parallel arrangement. Purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I shall be. He knows that God is can do that. You see, this foreshadows the gospel. David is calling out to the God who descends his people, the God who is so powerful, so merciful, that he purges with divine detergent even the filthiest stains of sin from his people. Centuries later, Isaiah's words are reminiscent of David's words, as God calls not just an individual, but all of Israel to repentance. They've been taken into exile, and they're under God's discipline, but He still loves them. And as God calls His people Israel to repentance, He speaks to the prophet Isaiah this way, "'Come now, let us reason together,' says the Lord. "'Though your sins are like scarlet,' they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Let me ask you a question. Do those sound like the words of a mean God or a merciful God? A merciful God. 
You see, those are the words of a God who wants, who wants to forgive his people. And so David in this psalm borrows the language of sacrifice and he applies it to himself. But we shouldn't miss the fact that the sacrifices he's alluding to in this moment are in no way sufficient to cover his sin. He may be covered in sin like leprosy, but what he needs from God is, it goes so unfathomably far beyond the ritual cleansing of a leper, beyond the ritual cleansing of a defiled person who's come in contact with a corpse. But you see, David sees the pattern. He sees the imagery. Uh, and as Paul points out in Romans 5, he, 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 he knows what he's hoping for that God will provide in the future. You see, what David needs is a greater sacrifice. What David needs is a greater blood. What David needs is a greater atonement, one that is sufficient to cover even his most heinous sins, premeditated adultery, premeditated murder, conspiracy, uh, the, the death of all his men. And furthermore, what David truly needs is a greater high priest to purge him with hyssop. And David deserves death. And therefore, what David needs and what God's mercy requires is a substitute who will die for him. That will satisfy God's mercy and it will also satisfy God's justice. What David needs is Jesus. He needs Jesus' atoning blood. He needs Jesus' priestly ministry. What David needs is so beautifully depicted by the writer to the Hebrews. Please, write this in your notes. Go home and read Hebrews chapter 9. And while you're at it, also read Hebrews chapter 10. I put chapter 9 in your notes, just plus chapter 10 on there. But for our purposes, just consider verses 11 through 14 of chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify, purge, de-sin our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? You see, brothers and sisters, we are purged. We are de-sinned the same way that David is ultimately de-sinned, and that is by the precious and perfect blood of Jesus. Through trusting in the one who was to come, God removed all the stains, all the sins from David's ledger. And God didn't stop there. He also credited righteousness back to him, the righteousness of Jesus. God took the pure and perfect and true righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he wrote it in David's ledger. 
And that is what He does for us when we believe in His Son. And now with one final plea, David will conclude his cry of repentance. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now the transition from verse 9 to verse 10 marks a major turning point in the psalm. It's the biggest shift. You see, words for sin, we've talked a lot about sin over the last two weeks. Words for sin appear 12 times in verses 1 through 9, but only twice in the remainder of the psalm. Similarly, God is only named once in the first nine verses, but He is named six times in the remainder. And this is David's way of depicting poetically, because this is a poem showing uh, artistically that through repentance, sin is removed and God is present. Through confession, awareness of sin evaporates and gives way to an experience and awareness of God. Now, so, so far in this psalm, uh, David has focused on what he needs God to remove. And now he's going to turn his attention and focus on what he needs God to renew. So next, David petitions the Lord to renew his spirit. His spirit is broken and it needs renewing. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, these verses express the positive work of God in the life of a repentant sinner. Create in me a clean heart, O God, Renew a right spirit within me. It's one thing for us to recognize our sin and to plead with God to forgive it and to remove it. And He does because He's good. But it's a whole other thing to recognize that though we're forgiven, we're prone to sin again, right? So David could be forgiven. He could be de-sinned all day long only to potentially repeat the reprehensible sins that we've read about. And so what David needs, what we all need, is God to effect true and lasting change inside of us. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Not a filthy heart that wants to sin, but a clean heart that wants to obey. Create in me that thing, O God, David cries out for. Now look at the first word. What is it? Create. What is it? You guys still with me? Okay. Create. <clears throat> Where else do we see the word create in the Old Testament? Yeah, Genesis chapter 1. You see, the verb that David use, uses here is the exact same verb that's used in Genesis 1 to describe God's creating out of nothing of the universe and humanity. He creates Barah, the, the, the planets and the solar system and their orbits. He sets them in place. He creates mankind. He programs our DNA. He, he makes us out of nothing. Now, there are uh, a host of <clears throat> verbs in biblical Hebrew to express the idea of creating or making or building or fashioning. So, there's a lot of different ways to say create. 
But there's something special about this particular verb that also appears in Genesis chapter 1. It occurs 54 times in the Old Testament. And every single time this verb occurs without, without, without exception, God is always the one who is doing the creating. This word is never used to refer to something that man creates or that people create together. Only God creates in this sense. And so what David is crying out for, what he is asking God to do is something that he is admitting that he knows only God can do. You see, this is David's humble admission that he cannot reform himself. I can't make myself acceptable before you. I can't reform my heart in my own way, and make it acceptable before you. I need you to create. As you created the sun and the moon and the stars and the solar systems, as you created and fashioned me uh, as a constituent member of humankind, I need you to create in me a clean heart, O God, and to renew the right spirit within me. You see, central to... Godly and genuine repentance is the conviction that we're powerless, that we're unable, that we're incapable of producing the kind of inner heart change that is necessary to keep us from continually descending into sin. Can you see David's reliance upon God? You see, this is his admission of utter dependence. He needs God to renew his inner person. Only then can he have full confidence that he'll walk with a right spirit, with a steadfast spirit that doesn't succumb to temptation and that actually delights in obedience. So when we think of renewal, being spiritually renewed by God as we repent before him, uh, renewal involves God supernaturally renovating our hearts but it also involves God restoring to us a sense of communion with Him, a sense of fellowship, a sense of relationship. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. You see, these are the words of a man who had it all, spiritually speaking, and feels intensely as though he has lost it all. Think of all that David has experienced with God, received from God. He's anointed by Samuel as a young man, probably around the age of 15. You read in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. He received the Holy Spirit as a spirit of anointing for kingship. And with the Spirit of God empowering David, he, he defeats Goliath. God repeatedly demonstrates his faithfulness to David and protects his life from Saul who becomes jealous and wants to kill him. God repeatedly provides for David. He makes him king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, when he's a little bit older, God makes him king of all Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms. He consolidates the kingdoms around David. Uh, God enables David to capture Jerusalem and to make it the capital of Israel. David is so close to God that he wants to make a temple with God, so temple for God, so that God no longer has to uh, be present in a tent. And when he does that, God makes an everlasting covenant with David. God grants David uh, continued military 
conquest. He defeats Moab and Edom and various other uh, people groups. He defeats the Aramaeans and just goes on and on and on. All the favor that David had from the Lord. He, he has enjoyed God's presence. He has enjoyed God's favor. He has been at the top, spiritually speaking. Can you see that? And then Bathsheba. He utterly self-destructs. He completely blows it. Do you think that he missed that sense of closeness to God? Do you think he missed that sense of relationship with God? Do you think he missed that sense of favor? Do you think that he missed his sense of innocence before God, his sense of blamelessness before God? You see, it's one thing to have never enjoyed God's favor like that and to wonder if it's possible. It's a whole other thing to have it and then to lose it and to be crushed under the thought that it will never be regained again. To be haunted by the thought that you'll just always be God's might have been. That's where David is at. Uh, his sin has brought him the deepest possible sorrow. And it has also brought him the most frightening separation from God. And remember, David saw what happened to Saul. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. He's seen what could become of him. And so what does he pray? Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. But finally, he pleads with God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Please note, David didn't lose his salvation. He lost the joy of his salvation. How many of us have walked through sweet seasons with the Lord uh, only to be uh, you know, distracted, only to be enticed, maybe to fall into sin, maybe to backslide, and to have that sense of closeness with God just evaporate, and you just long for it again, but it just doesn't seem to come back. It's a hard place to be. That's where David is. He's lost the joy. His sin has smashed his fellowship with God. It's broken. He can't rekindle it on his own. Only by coming to God, repenting, finding cleansing, will that joy be refreshed. I think that though David's situation is intense, and this is all very dramatic, I think that we should be encouraged as we consider each one of David's requests. Because each request presupposes that God is able. Each request presupposes that God is willing, and not just that He is willing, but that He will do these things for David on account of His mercy, on account of His steadfast love, on account of His abundant mercy, His deep compassion. And so though we can feel David's brokenness throughout this Psalm. Though we can experience conviction ourselves through His words, we must not allow those things to also eclipse His hope in these words, His confidence in God. We should have that same hope. We can have that same hope in confidence in our God because His character is unchanging. It doesn't change person to person. It doesn't change from David to you.
but even renewed joy needs to be protected. Not only does David need for God to save him, he also needs God to sustain him. See, not only do we depend upon God to cleanse our consciences, to remove our shame, to decent us, but we also depend upon God to uphold us in His righteousness, to carry us, to lead us, and to guide us, and to empower us, and to help us. And so knowing that He cannot walk rightly before God purely in His own strength, David concludes 12 verses of petition, of crying out to God with these words, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Uphold me, God. You hold me up. You strengthen me. You give to me a willing spirit, a spirit that wants to, is willing to obey you, to walk according to your statutes, not one that is wayward, but one that is willing. You see, that's the work of God. Next, we see David's pledge. He's going to conclude his psalm with a pledge, verses 13 through 19, but I'm only going to cover through 17. And his first pledge is to witness, to bear witness about God. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Then, look at that word, then, then, that uh, connotes a if-then relationship, a cause and effect relationship. God, if you do all these things, no, when you do all these things, because I'm confident in you, I believe in you, you are my Savior, you are my Deliverer, when you do all these things for me, according to your grace, according to your goodness, not my merit, but your mercy, when you do all these things, then I will do this. I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will return to you. Please note that David's pledge is a response to God's mercy, a response to God's kindness. It is not a trade. It's not a bargain. He's not trying to cut a deal with God. You see, what we see David expressing is this reality. When we wear our guilt and shame like filthy garments, when our sins loom up before us, constantly accusing us of our guilt, when our consciences are heavily burdened, and then we experience God's forgiveness, when we taste His mercy, when we know His kindness, when He lifts that load, it is completely transforming. It is completely transforming. David is anticipating that experience. He he is so moved by God's mercy that the central desire of his heart is changing. He's no longer desiring to live for himself, to build his empire, to accumulate more wives, to continue his conquest, but to now live for God, to live for God such that those who are like he once was, sinners, would do the same thing that he is describing in this psalm, that they would return to the Lord. See, it all boils down to this. What is the natural response of a transformed and 
burdened heart to God's goodness, the natural response is to share that goodness with others. I think this is the greatest formula for evangelism in the whole Bible. When we are moved by God's mercy, we will be compelled to proclaim the fame of his name. But next, David also pledges to worship. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. This kind of represents David's final plea for deliverance, and it's the most explicit of all of them. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. You see, David is a man, after all, with blood on his hands, the premeditated blood of Uriah, the blood of he and Bathsheba's deceased baby, but also the blood of all of his men who had to die at the improvisational direction of Joab so that Uriah's death would look legitimate in the battlefield. And this guilt is so crushing for David. Now that the sinfulness of his sin has been revealed to him, it is so overwhelming that it's evidenced by his threefold cry to God. Deliver me, O God. O God of my salvation. O Lord, open my lips. Think for just a moment about the picture that David has been painting of himself and of his sin and who God is, it it reaches a crescendo uh, in this moment. Here's the picture. You see, God in His mercy, in His initiative, is taking a man with blood on his hands and guilt in his heart, and He is de-sinning him with divine detergent, bleaching him with the blood of the Lamb who is to come, restoring his identity, recreating his heart, renewing his joy, refreshing his soul, and opening his lips to declare his excellencies. God could make his name famous any way he wanted, but in his infinite wisdom and providence and in his mercy and goodness, he chooses to redeem sinners, to change them and save them and open their mouths to declare his goodness. That's not just David, that is you and that is me. I stand here a converted sinner. I would be guilty before God if it were not for His saving initiative and mercy. My sins are too great. I cannot stand before a holy God. But in His grace, He condescended and came to me in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly in my place and hung on a cross and died the death that I deserve. And now He has opened my mouth, just like He opened David's mouth. He has opened lips to declare his praise. That is the picture that's being painted in this psalm. And what happened? I mean, we're here thousands of years later rehearsing the words that have come from David's lips. What happened? David makes this pledge to God, oh Lord, open my lips and I will declare. David did declare God's excellencies, and many of those declarations appear in the Psalms of our Bible and have served as testimony to non-believers and encouragement to believers for millennia. Look what God has done through by, by redeeming a sinner. You see, God would have been fully justified in killing this man, but He did not. He put away His sin, and He redeemed him, and He uses him, and continues to use him as an instrument of redemption. Church, this is grace. 
This is grace. This is mercy. This is the gospel. And David's words here give us a framework for our worship. You see, worship, when we come together and sing, when we walk in obedience, when we sing in our cars or in our showers or in our homes or together here at church, our singing, our worship is a response to God's grace and mercy. And well-ordered worship, theologically sound worship, always has as the object of worship God. Proper worship is always God-centered. Look what David says. My tongue will sing your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. Church, whatever you do, don't listen to theologically hollow, man-centered worship. Listen and sing worship that declares the excellencies of Christ. And furthermore, what David is showing us is that dead people don't sing, but people who have new life sing, and they sing loud. I love to sing when we come together. I'm moved when I stand over there and I hear your voices, and I hear especially Justin's soothing voice up here. I love when we worship together. In staff meeting, I'll often say, oh, can we just have more worship? Yeah, I'm like, that's great, but we just don't have time because your sermons are too long. <laughs> and finally, David pledges to walk humbly before God, to walk humbly. For you will not delight in sacrifices, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. David's not saying that the Lord is not pleased with offerings. He's just saying that the exterior needs to line up with the interior. The interior needs to line up with the exterior. It doesn't matter if he gives sacrifices if his heart is not properly humbled before God. You see, what God wants from David, what God wants from us, what is truly pleasing to him are humble hearts, hearts that recognize their need before him, hearts that experience remorse over sin, hearts that come to God burdened by guilt, acknowledging that only he can unburden us. He wants the outside to be a consistent reflection of the inside. He wants our worship together to be authentic and not counterfeit. So what David is saying here is, I know that if my heart is not right, then the ritual is worthless. And he drives it home. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You will not Two weeks ago, we started our journey through this psalm, and I pointed out that David begins the psalm with God, with God's mercy, with his steadfast love, with his deep compassion. He hangs all of his pleas, all of his petitions, he hangs them on God's unchanging character. But David not only begins with God, he also ends with God. He begins with who God is, and he ends with what God wants. And what God wants is living sacrifices not empty rituals. And when we go astray, when we fail, when we backslide, when we transgress, when we rebel, when we sin, even when we sin heinously, grievously, reprehensibly, even then, God invites us to return to Him with empty hands and broken hearts because those are things He will not turn away. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. You might be thinking to yourself, God was willing to forgive David's sins. That was David. How do I know he's willing to forgive my sins? Here's how you know. He gave his only son for you. For in the fullness of time, God sent his son to pay for our sins. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. And when he was dying on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by God that we would never be forsaken by God. And when he breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was rended to, it was torn from top to bottom, his sacrificial death opening the way to God for all of us. Jesus paid the penalty of sin once for all of us. And in His mercy, through Jesus, God provides a new way. His own Son became the sin sacrifice. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And the Apostle John writes, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And again, he says, if we confess our sins, He who is faithful and just will forgive our sins, and cleanse, purge, descend us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Church, I leave you with this. If God was willing to purge David's terrible sins. If God was willing to forgive Israel its grievous sins, how much more will God be willing to forgive our sins now that Christ has offered his life for the sins of the world? You see, that is good news. And if you haven't believed that good news before this moment, believe it now. Believe it now. Look to Jesus. Give your sin to him. Let him blot it out. Let him write his righteousness in your ledger and receive from him forgiveness, cleansing, and peace right now. Let's pray. God of mercy, you know us better than we know ourselves, and yet you still love us. Create in us clean hearts. Strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. Uphold us with willing spirits. Cause us to give you praise that is pleasing to you. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who is our sacrifice. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.com. Dot org.